The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. All right, so again, thank everybody for joining. This will be a podcast on all your favorite platforms under the Lean Lag Live banner, as well as available on YouTube. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Gary Brode. Now, i got to tell you that I've gotten to know Gary a little bit the last few months. The man is 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 unbelievable in the way he works hard and his analysis, and he's a he really hustles quite a bit, so everybody here should unequivocally follow Gary. But Gary, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get interested in markets? And what are you doing with deep knowledge investing? Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. So my first interest in markets, I was actually in high school. And when I graduated, my dad, as a graduation present, brought me to New York for a four-day weekend. And plane landed in LaGuardia, I don't know, something like nine in the morning. And he said, what's the first thing you want to do? And I don't know why. I was a weird kid. I said, I want to go see the stock exchange. So my dad, being a good guy, took me down to the stock exchange. Back in those days, you could stand on the balcony overlooking the trading floor where it wasn't all electronic. And I saw these people in brightly colored coats yelling and screaming and throwing paper at each other. And to me, it looked like a whole lot of fun. And so I started reading and learning and learning about finance and investing in the stock market and investment banking. First job out of school was M&A at Morgan Stanley. And then I spent 30 years being a moneymaker in the hedge fund business. A lot of long, short equity, a lot of value investing, growth investing, risk arbitrage, special situations. I really covered a lot of ground and had some fantastic mentors, some people I'm really grateful to for teaching me the business. And most recently, I ran Silver Arrow with Raji Kabaz for eight years. Our long return on invested capital beat the S&P 500 by almost 100 percentage points. And January of 2020, I took that same high alpha, high return, high probability methodology to deep knowledge investing. We work with hedge funds, family offices, RIAs, wealth advisors, and individuals. And we help them get better returns in the equity markets. We've been very effective on that. In just our three years, we've had a bunch of stock picks that have doubled, tripled, quadrupled. We do on occasion make macro calls. We had our subscribers shorting the market in February of 2020 ahead of the COVID lockdowns. We prepared people for inflation, including telling them to buy energy in November of 2021 when the Fed was still talking about it as transitory. And January of this year, we had our subscribers, we told them to short the market ahead of interest rate increases. So I think, you know, at a time when a lot of people are constantly saying it's a bad market, it's a terrible market, it was the first, you know, worst first half 
ever in the market, our view is roll with the changes, you know, figure out what's going to work now, be flexible, be adaptable and find a way to help people make money no matter what the environment is. And that's been our focus. Thanks. What are, what are some of the most overrated hedge fund strategies that you came across, right? I mean, there's StatArb, as you mentioned, there's merger arbitrage, there's all kinds of you know esoteric type stuff. What are some of the uh, things which, which from your experience really aren't as as valid as people might think? So that's a great question. And my experience with it is it's that it really depends on the timing. So for example, my first buy side job was working for Doug Hirsch at Smith Newcourt. And then when he started Seneca Capital, he brought me with him and we were doing special situations, investing, we were doing risk arbitrage. And at the time, you know, there were a lot of deals, most deals closed. And, you know, interest rates were kind of a reasonable level there. And you were shooting for maybe triple the risk-free rate. And you could turn out these really good, consistent returns as long as you weren't in the one or two deals a year that broke. And it was a great strategy. But then you got 10 years down the road and you had guys like Warren Buffett coming in and he was doing risk arbitrage's yield enhancement and interest rates came down. And it just became a really, really difficult way to earn a living and people were doing the deals unhedged and it, it just, the, the strategy was great when we were doing it. I don't think I'd be committing capital to it right now. Obviously the macro guys had, you know, their heyday back in the seventies and eighties in the nineties, you had long-term capital management blow up. You had the Asian debt crisis. But now that we come back to the last few years, the global macro guys are doing well again. I don't know that it's so much that, you know, these guys are good. These guys are bad. These guys deliver promises. These guys don't. I think it's more a matter of you have to pick your time and your market and not everything's going to work at a particular time. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, literally one month after I started deep knowledge investing, we had COVID and that was a very different market environment than anything I had ever seen before. And so again, and at the risk of being repetitive, our view on it was be adaptable, you know, roll with the changes and find ways to help people make money no matter what. We just refuse to complain about the environment because in any environment, no matter how bad it is, there's always something you can do. And I think a lot of people, Michael, forget that you have options other than being 100% long all the time, whether it's 100% long stocks or bonds or some 60-40 blend. There are ways you can take money off the table. You can switch to gold, to Bitcoin, to energy. You can short things. Our view is there's always something that can be done, and so we try to be flexible. Yeah, and, and as you know, the, the challenge which requires a degree of forward thinking and, and almost a contrarian mindset is you, if in an environment which doesn't quite look like what you're used to, you've got to pretty much entirely flip your opportunity set, right? And the problem is that most people's opportunity set is that which has already worked, right? So why does alpha get arbitraged away? Because money chases the best performing hot hand and those strategies then are no longer as interesting as they used to be or not able to generate as much outperformance in 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 general. Let's talk about some of the ways that you've thought through this year in terms of how to play and I use the term play playfully market <laughs> dynamics here, right? Because I, I say play because it's like I, I always and I, I have to I trip myself up sometimes too when I say, you know, uh, make a bet or play. It's like this is not a game, it's a serious endeavor, right? But 
But talk about how you've uh, been able to navigate a year like this. I think it's got to be more involved than simply say shorting is what's worked. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, you're completely right, Michael. And and you have it nailed. For me, in more than 30 years on the buy side, this is simply the weirdest environment I've ever been part of, but we have handled it profitably. And the biggest change is I'd spent three decades being a stock picker, right? Doing huge amounts of in-depth research and looking for that thing that other people don't necessarily understand. And you were talking a minute ago about you know, people's opportunity set looks like what their opportunity set looked like yesterday. And what that does is it leads to huge amounts of groupthink. And so if you stand apart and don't read the same sell-side research as everybody else, and you're willing to stand on your own and maybe be a contrarian, or maybe instead of being a contrarian, just being independent and having your own view on things, you see those moments when everyone else is focused on one thing and you realize, wait a minute, they're all viewing it wrong because they're using the wrong lens. And so after 30 years as a stock picker, this year for me, it's been all macro. We literally stopped recommending individual stocks. Now, that won't be the case forever. I will absolutely 100% go back to it. But one of the, the things that we put up in a post on the Deep Knowledge Investing blog, and this one is not paywalled, is I grabbed the heat map for the S&P 500. And what you saw was the entire thing was red. You know the the chart I'm talking about, Michael, the one where it has the different boxes representing every stock in the S&P 500, the size of the, the box represents the market cap. And the more red it is, the more down it is on the year. And what that looked like was it was completely red with the exception of a bright green box representing energy. And that's what we've done, right? There, there was a lot of reason to believe that energy came into the year way too cheap, that inflation was going to mean higher energy prices. Um, shorting the market was a response to what we saw as stagflation, which we were calling back in February and Fed rate hikes. And so it, it has been a shift. And rather than say, no, 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 I'm a stock picker. We're going to keep picking individual stocks. I'm going to find things that are cheap. I, at the end of the day, Michael, I had no desire to do great work have my clients and subscribers lose money and have some great reason why, no, 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 I did great work, even though you lost money. We shifted the entire strategy to be focused on macro this year. And that's going to continue for as long as it will. But at some point, we're going to return from this macro environment where correlations are really kind of one for everything. And you've written about this a lot, stocks and bonds, correlations went from negative to positive one. At some point, individual research, individual stock picking, that skill will matter again. And when it does, I'm going to dive right back into my happy pool of stock picking, you know, with 
both feet. But until then, we're focused on macro, and it was a huge change for us. I've always found the uh, the discussion around stock picking to be interesting in the sense that from the work that I've done and from various other research studies, it's it's less about stock picking and more about industry or sector selection, right? That's kind of the school of fish as opposed to maybe some of the idiosyncratic aspects of a particular company. Am I right or wrong on that? Because I think that's that's an important starting point, right? Do you start with the bottom up of the company or do you start from the top down of the sector and industry? So I think you're entirely right. Based on the direction, the long, short equity hedge fund world has gone, they would disagree with you. I don't. I've been a generalist my whole career. And inevitably, I run into people who say, well, I don't understand what value can you provide as a generalist? You know, this fund or these guys, they've got sector specific analysts. They spend all day following, you know, the sector and they know, you know, every company and every CEO and every CEO. Okay, great. You know, that's that's valid. But my view on it is much more akin to yours, where the real value is in figuring out what's what's the next sector that's going to perform well. And then you find the best, cheapest company in that sector. I think there's not so much value in following one sector all the time and figuring out, okay, well, we want to own XYZ in my sector because they're going to be earnings this quarter by a penny. I, I just don't think that matters anymore. I don't know that it ever did matter that much. And so, you know, once you've found the industry where you want to be focused, then there's a ton of bottom-up analysis and you want to find the right company. But that whole game of we're going to follow it and figure out who's going to meet or or miss by a penny or beat or miss by a penny, I, I just, I don't think it's worth your time anymore to be doing that. There's a lot more leverage. Like this year, you didn't necessarily need to have the energy companies right. You needed to know that energy was the place to be. And, you know, everyone's maybe the people who were focused on energy have done well. But if you look at if you look at what goes on in a lot of the big long short equity funds, the risk that they take is if you have sector specialists, you'll have sector exposure. Right. So, for example, if you have a banking analyst, you will have banking exposure because that banking analyst doesn't want to go to the portfolio manager and say, hey, listen, I don't have any good ideas. Let's just not have exposure. It's a great way to get fired. Somebody's going to say, then what am I paying you for, even though it might be the right move? If you have a retail analyst, you'll have retail exposure, but maybe the right move is to have no retail exposure or to be short retail. And so for me, that's the advantage of being a generalist. So even though the industry is going toward larger funds, more individual specialization, my take on it is the real money is being made by people who have more of your approach to things. And that's the approach that I've favored as well. Yeah, no, I, and, and I agree with that. 100%. Now, I am curious, what is it that led you to the conclusion around energy? So if we're going to talk about sector and industry, obviously you can do relative momentum. I mean, I had noted that myself in the lead lag report for a while, the relative momentum was there. It wasn't necessarily based on all the arguments you hear now around underinvestment. But what were some of the, the catalysts for you that made you say, okay, this is now the time for energy stocks? Yeah. So... And, and you're right. For me, it's not momentum. I, I don't look at charts. I'm not a quant guy or a momentum guy or a day trader. You, you had someone on last week who talked about being a day trader. He had really interesting comments. I think it was on Friday. 
And I think you're good at that, right? I like, I see you tweeting, you know, this is what I think is going to happen. And it's very clearly on a short time frame. And I think you're really good at that. It's That's not the lens I use. I just don't have the background in it. For me, my first interest in energy was last November when I started to look at inflation and realized, okay, wait a minute, this is enormous, hugely understated, and not even remotely transitory. And so I, I realized inflation was a gigantic problem and started to think, okay, well, if we're going to be having inflation, what do we do about it? And some of the answers were, you know, pretty basic, owning things like gold. And, you know, that's worked out okay. It's down a little bit or flattish, but against the market that's down 20, 30%, it's outperformed. But owning energy, owning oil at a time of inflation, right? You you want to own hard commodities at a time when the purchasing power of currency is declining. And that's what led me to that. And then, you know, the more work I did, the more I realized that despite some of the COVID lockdowns that have killed demand and some of the recessionary and supply chain issues that have killed demand, long-term energy demand continues to increase, but people aren't really serious about building out infrastructure. So as an example of that, let's take a look at California. And, you know, we see California a few months ago said, okay, we want all vehicles sold in the state of California to be electric by 2035. Okay, well, that's 13 years from now. And I think they were even thinking 2030 at one point, which is eight years from now or seven. So Michael, here's my question for you. Does California have the energy infrastructure to start charging up millions of EVs? Not not only, right. right, they can't keep their air conditioning running. You know, they can't keep their lights on. And so here's the other thing. Are they building that infrastructure? Well, no, they're not. The, the infrastructure doesn't exist and they're not building it. They're not serious about it. And, you know, people who are looking at all kinds of things like wind power and um, solar power are ignoring the horrible environmental impact those technologies have, the amount of diesel it takes to mine things like lithium and rare earth metals, the disposal problems, right? And you need a lot of battery power. You need more infrastructure to deal with intermittent sources of power. And so until people start taking nuclear seriously, we're going to have issues with uh, supply. Because right now, the only thing we have for baseload supply, if you need to increase more, is fossil fuels, is carbon-based fuels. And, you know, take a look. This current administration in the United States is setting a record, multi-decade record low for permitting allowed. They've said they want to put these companies out of business. You know, in Germany and Poland, they're actually going to coal as an option. In some European countries, they're actually burning wood. We're going back for technology that existed thousands of years ago. And so until we end up with somebody saying we either need to build nuclear plants now or start drilling and producing more oil and natural gas, there's going to be a shortage versus demand. So combination of inflation, increasing energy demand, and lack of energy intensity in the areas where people are building out infrastructure, 
all say to me the price of energy is going to keep going up. Now, please, for everyone listening, I am not making a prediction on the price of oil where it's going to be in a day, a week, a month. This is a long-term bet that we're making, and we're prepared to hold it for a long time. Our experience is that people are very bad at figuring out the short-term price of commodities, and we're not going to even attempt that. I'm looking at long-term supply and demand, if that helps. Well, and I would add, I don't, I don't think anybody's good at price targets in general. I mean, it's always been a, a, a an issue for me is people say, how high do you think something can go? It's like, it's not about levels. It's about conditions. I always go back to conditions, favor the probabilities, favor the outcomes. So the conditions are there for oil to keep going higher, for energy stocks to keep on being a, a leader underneath the surface. How far that goes is a function purely of whether the conditions change. And, and it's hard, I think, for people to really think in those terms, right? Because it, it requires continuous assessment of what's happening in the here and now and the somewhat visible short-term future. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. That's that's right, Michael. I I not only do I completely agree with you, but I've got an example from this year that proves your point. So last February, March, something like that, you know, you had this run up in oil prices and but there was demand destruction that was greater than what you would have expected at that price. And oil kind of got capped. And I'm doing this from memory, but someone helped me out. Maybe it was like 120, 130, something like that. And there were all these projections that oil was going to go to 160, 200. And the question was, why didn't it? And what happened was, it turns out that we do have a shortage of oil. But what we have a bigger shortage of is refining capacity. And so crack spreads blew out. They're normally like 10 to $15. And for, sorry, for people who are listening to this and you know might not be familiar with the jargon, crack spread is just the fancy word for the spread that you get from a refiner. So a refinery will take in raw crude and they'll process it and you'll end up with distillate, again, fancy word for different grades of gasoline, aircraft fuel, diesel, they process it. And so a typical crack spread or the margin that these refineries make would be around $10, $15. And what we saw late in the first quarter this year was that crack spreads went to something like $60. And so oil at 120 was really operating like oil at 160 or 180, something like that. And you had all of this demand destruction and people were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what's happening? Why is the price of gas going up more than the price of oil is? And the answer is because we were short oil, but we were really short refining capacity. And that's a long way of proving your exact point, right? It's it's not just what's the price, it's what are conditions. And there are often second order conditions. In this case, you really needed to understand that it was a refining issue. It's one of the reasons why 
you know, we've been skeptical, the, the White House, and we've frequently referred to the commodity trader in chief who is trying to set a like 70, 90 or 70, 100 bid offer spread on oil. You know, they, they've, they've talked about stuff like this, but these things are very difficult to control because even if we have more oil, no one is building another refinery in the United States because that's a multi-year, multi-billion dollar project against an administration that's saying, we want to put you out of business. We want you guys to not exist. So there's a lot going on in the space, and it's certainly much more complicated than most casual observers expect. All right, let's 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 tie that into the name of the space, right? The, if, and, and talk about it from the perspective of conditions, the energy move, and Japan, which has to import a lot of its own energy sources. I named the space the Japan default loom was partially because I like being a little bit dramatic, as some people may be aware. But that's something that oh, a lot of people yeah. have been talking about and worrying about, right, for a while. First of all, for the audience, lay out from your vantage point where Japan is in uh, its debt cycle. And if the fear everyone's been talking about forever may actually at some point come to pass, which is you know, them no longer being able to to survive with unlimited debt. Yeah. So the place to start on this, and, and it's a really big question. So Michael, I'm going to ask you, you may need to redirect me a couple of times because there's a lot of information to convey. And I'm going to try to distill it down into the key points. But the place that all of this started was more than a decade of zero or in the case of Japan and the EU, actually negative interest rates, which always struck me as completely insane. Who in the world lends money to their government in promise that they'll get less back in the future? It's it's ridiculous. And yet that's where we were. There were trillions of dollars of sovereign debt with negative yield on it. And again, for people who don't do this stuff all day, sovereign debt simply means debt where the payer is a government. U.S. Treasuries are sovereign debt. The Bank of Japan is issuing Japanese debt. That's sovereign debt. U.K. gilts, also sovereign debt. So, Michael, think about it this way. Let's say I say to you, Michael, I'm going to loan you money at a 0% interest rate or maybe even like negative 10 basis points. How much do you want to borrow? Do you want to borrow $100, $1,000, a million, a billion, a trillion? How much would you borrow if I gave you zero to negative 0.1 rates? Right. Wouldn't you yeah, borrow the old, an enormous... The good old infinity symbol would kick in, I guess, is, is the way to frame it. Exactly. Right. And so I, I think a lot of people don't realize the gigantic damage being done by what we've had over the last decade or so as a coordinated assault by central banks on any kind of price discovery by the market. They've just completely taken over and set the price of capital too low. And the thing that that I would love for people to think about is instead of thinking about interest as that thing you learned about the magic of compounding and it's the thing that you get in your checking account or your savings account or on a government bond, what it really does is it sets the price of risk and of time in the market. And when you, when you mess up that signal and you lose the, the signal that the market wants to give you for what the proper price of risk and time is, you end up with ridiculous results. Now, Japan, in this case, is the poster child for ridiculous results. And for anyone who's Japanese here, I fully acknowledge the EU has screwed this up, the UK has screwed this up, the United States and the Federal Reserve has screwed this up. This is not exclusively a Japanese problem. It's just going to show up there first. 
And so what happened was the Japanese took their interest rate down to zero, negative 0.1, something like that. And because of that, they were able to run up massive amounts of debt without blowing up their budget. It's just like, you know, when I offer Michael, Michael, how much money do you want to borrow at 0%? Your answer is infinity, which is absolutely the right answer because you can do something with that. So Japan at this point has run up their national debt to somewhere in the neighborhood of 260% of GDP. It's enormous. And the reason they were able to do that is because interest rates were so low, it didn't break their budget. When you're paying nothing on interest, you might as well borrow everything you can. Well, now we're in a situation where central banks are starting to raise rates. The U.S. Federal Reserve has been out front, and that's why the dollar has been strong this year versus other currencies. And we're seeing the Bank of England and the European Central Bank starting to slowly follow as well. And so what's happening in Japan right now is the Bank of Japan is trying to hold the line at 25 basis points. So try to imagine in the US, you know, we're looking at ballpark 4% rates and the yield curve's inverted right now. So if you go out to the 10 year, it's a little lower than that. And in Japan, they're trying to hold the line at 0.25%. So what's happening is money is flowing out of Japanese bonds and into the US dollar. And they're using those dollars to buy US bonds. And as yen-denominated assets are sold and dollar-denominated assets are bought, you have the yen collapsing. And I, I didn't look where it is this morning, but at one point not so long ago, the yen had fallen this year from 100 yen to buy a dollar to 150 yen to buy a dollar. Now, for people listening, you know, moves of 2-3% in foreign exchange rates tend to be pretty big. This was a 50% move against, you know, this was in Zimbabwe. It's the world's fourth largest economy and a highly industrialized economy. And so you have all of this pressure and the Japanese government is holding, or the Bank of Japan, the same thing, is holding the line on 25 basis points. Now, the question would be, why, why, why would you do that? Why not just raise rates instead of seeing your currency depreciate by 50%? And that goes back to the debt level. When your debt is 250% of GDP, even a small increase in interest rates blows out your budget. Your interest expense becomes unpayable. And it will leave the Japanese government with some very unappealing choices like cutting their social safety net, cutting their government spending, or significantly raising taxes, or all of the above. And no government stays in power when they're raising taxes and cutting government services. And so they're at a point where if they respond to this, they're going to blow up their budget. In an effort to not blow up their budget, they have to keep interest rates low. And the way they do that is to let the currency slide. Now, this would be a problem for anyone, but it's particularly a problem for Japan, which is a small island nation with an amazing population, right? Their people are innovative and hard workers and detail oriented, but they don't have a lot of natural resources. And when you're a small island without a lot of natural resources, you need to import a lot. And so one way or another, the Japanese standard of living is about to be significantly impacted. Either the government doesn't hold the line on that 25 basis point bond yield and they blow up the government budget, Or alternatively, they let the yen continue to fall 
And when that happens, it's going to make daily life for the average Japanese citizen very, very expensive because they need to import a lot. Is that a clear enough answer, or are there aspects of this that need more explanation? No, 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 that's good, but, but let's go a little bit to the origins of it. What, what was the I – mean, it goes back to conditions, I guess, but what was the, what was the point that, that resulted in Japan continuously adding to its debt relative to its GDP? What, was, there, was there some particular date? Was there some kind of particular action that was taken, or was it just something that built up over time and now we're suddenly here? I think it was a combination of something that built up over time. It wasn't like they went to bed one morning, one night with you know debt at 100 – percent of GDP. And three months later, it was 260%. It built up over time. You know, they had a prime minister who pursued this particular course of action. And in some ways, and I, I disagree with it, but in some ways, I understand why it made sense. Japan has had really no economic growth, no inflation, no increase in stock prices, right? I mean, they, they've really had They've talked about like this lost generation. They've, they've had this long period of economic stagnation. And in my opinion, the right answer to something like that is get out of the way, right? Reduce government involvement in the economy and let the innovation of your people take over. And that's typically the right thing, but governments don't do that. Governments typically don't get out of the way. And so what they've done is they pursued these policies of more debt, more spending, more currency creation, basically what the U.S. Federal Reserve has done over the last decade in a desperate attempt to try to get some sort of growth, some sort of inflation. They, they, they kept trying to restart that engine and spark it and spark it and spark it. And because the economy didn't respond to that, they ended up with debt at 260% of GDP. They didn't get the economic growth that they were hoping for. And now they're caught between two unwinnable situations, right? One is basically a debt default. The other is your currency plummeting and your, your cost of living plummeting. And so this was a multi-decade bet by Japan that didn't play out the way they had hoped to. What they really needed to do was for the debt they took on to be productive and help their GDP grow. And so, you know, like, think, think this through for me, and this never happens with government spending. But if you could borrow a trillion dollars and use it to create $3 trillion of GDP, you would actually take on more debt and deleverage. But government spending never works that way. And so they just took on more and more debt, didn't get the growth, ended up with flattish GDP, and ever-growing debt. Basically, they made the same choice as every other central bank did, but they didn't get the corresponding GDP growth. And nobody does. It's just in Japan, it was particularly bad. Let me reset the room for the remaining 25 minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Gary Broad. And if you're curious, and I am sincere when I say that he really does have some great research at his website, Deep Knowledge Investing. Again, my name is Michael Gaia. This will be available as a podcast in the next couple of days here, is there? Are, are, I'm going to assume the answer is there's no way out of this for Japan, right? There's there's nothing that they can do. They can't pull a musk and suddenly, you know, trim a whole bunch of fat and and make the whole system hopefully more efficient. I, I guess the question is: Has there ever been a point in this elevated debt cycle for Japan, which is 
as dangerous as this one now, right? Because they have to make a choice. You either control rates and stop them from spike, or you let your currency freefall, which is what we've seen. And, and you know, both options are, are really terrible. Yes, both options are indeed terrible. And in my opinion, this is the worst financial crisis Japan has faced since World War II. You know, what we saw was through the 50s and 60s, the country rebuilt. And by the 70s, they were really getting going. And back in the 80s, you know, anyone who's old enough to remember, people in the United States were really afraid that Japan was going to succeed us as the world's economic leader. And there were all of the those those discussions about, you know, you could sell, you know, one building in Tokyo and buy Rockefeller Center 10 times over, or, you know, you sell one acre in Tokyo and you could buy all of San Francisco. And, you know, there were real fears about that. But yeah, I agree with you. I think this is certainly the worst crisis they faced. And the thing that concerns me about it more than anything else is, and I made this point earlier, I don't think Japan is unique. I think they're early with this problem. I think the problems we're seeing in Japan are very similar or identical to the problems we're seeing in the EU, in the UK, and the United States. And I think Japan is worth watching because what happens there may be the model for what happens here. And you know, finance people, we're always looking for pattern recognition for comps. We say, okay, yeah, when this happens, you know, when event X happens, you get result Y. And when you see result X, someplace else or, or you know, that, that ends up becoming the model for what people look for and what they expect. I don't know what will happen here. I agree with you that they have bad options. It would be interesting to see what would happen if they were to simply repudiate the debt and basically pull like an Argentina or a Greece, you know, which every 15 years or so they say, yeah, we're not paying this. And, you know, thanks, but we're keeping your money and you're, you're now holding pieces of paper. It would be interesting to see. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to see something else, both in Japan and the United States. I think what they're going to do is lean into the death spiral as a solution. And I know that sounds like crazy phrasing, but here's what I mean by it. So the reason it's a death spiral is... Right now, you know, what Japan needs to do is they need to raise interest rates. If they do that, their budget breaks. The only way they can pay the budget is to print more currency. More currency creation leads to more inflation, which then leads to a need to raise interest rates, which then blows out the budget and you need to print more wash, rinse, repeat, right? And this is actually what we're going to see here in the United States. And one of the mistakes that people make is they like to look at the on-balance sheet debts. You ask somebody, what are the liabilities of the United States? And people like to say, oh, you know, $31 trillion. Not even close. Michael, add in pensions, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, all of the entitlements and the real liabilities of the United States are close to a quarter of a quadrillion dollars. Just like the Japanese debt, it won't be paid. And so I think what people are going to do is they won't officially default, but there will be a stealth default. They'll print currency to cover it. That will lead to inflation and they will pay off their debt, but they're going to pay it off in paper or in you know, fiat currency that just has very, very little value. And so, you know, imagine a scenario where 
you are, you know, you're in the United States and you have social security and you're expecting a $3,000 check and you get the $3,000 check, but all you can buy with it is a loaf of bread. Has the United States defaulted? Technically not, but they've effectively delivered very little value versus the promises that they've made. And I think that's what we're going to see. And, you know, Lynn Alden has talked about how it's impossible for a government that can print their own currency and has debt denominated in their own currency to default. You can print more. And I and she's right. And I think that's what we'll see. There will be so much money printing that we're going to have massive inflation and everybody's going to claim we didn't default. But, you know, OK, if if you know, I owe you a million dollars and I give you the million dollars, but all you can buy with it is uh, a pack of gum, a loaf of bread and a candy bar. You know, have I defaulted? Technically, no, but you haven't gotten much value for the deal. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, no 100%. And, and I think that's sort of everybody, I think, would largely agree that, again, it goes back to that point, there's no way out. So inflation is going to be perceived as their answer unless you get, you know, what you alluded to, sort of a, a restructuring or or forgiveness of debt. I've made the argument that the student loan uh, debt forgiveness may be sort of the precedence that's needed for the U.S. to at some point do that. Is there any hope that inflation comes down hard enough to prevent or at least delay that day of reckoning in terms of sort of the inflationary defaults? Because it seems like this is what I always I always like try to think of things in terms of not necessarily contrarianism, but right. And a surprise would be a, you know some kind of disinflation or deflation that comes out of nowhere. Uh, and it, what what could drive inflation meaningfully lower to at least kick the can to result in the government to kick the can down the road further? Yeah, and by the way, that's that's a great question and one that we have been debating internally for months. Two part answer to that. The first part is can this be stopped? The answer is no, not a chance. There's no possibility without some sort of massive inflation or default or restructuring, which is effectively a default that Japan will be in a position to pay off debt that is a multiple of their GDP. Looking at the United States, could we pay off $31 trillion? I don't know, maybe. Can we pay off $250 trillion? Because those liabilities, while not on the balance sheet are real, not a chance. It will never be paid. It's a quarter of a quadrillion dollars. Can this be stopped? No. And I'll point out that there's tons of historical precedent for this. This is how Every empire in history has ended. Overexpansion, war, debt, currency debasement. And basically, it's, you know, we're at bread and circuses here. And at some point, the currency is just worthless paper or, you know, zinc coins covered in a thin layer of silver or copper that aren't worth anything. And the whole economy collapses. And we, we've seen this. I mean, this is what happened in ancient Rome. It's what happened with the Spanish empire. All empires end the exact same way. And it's like this. And the thing that's amazing to me is all of the central bankers and people who head up the treasury departments of their countries, they either know no financial history or they pretend they don't because we're replaying the same movie again and again and again. But the historical precedent over thousands of years not only exists, but it's always the same. So can this be avoided? No. Can the can be kicked down the road? Yeah, maybe, maybe. And the answer really depends on whether the market and the bond vigilantes are willing to accept it, right? And so could we do another round 
of lower interest rates and quantitative easing and telling everyone, don't worry, there's economic growth, everything's fine, and have the market swallow it, maybe it's possible. I mean, you know, the the example that we've used in the past is right now, you know, it's a Saturday night, we're out at a party and it's midnight and everyone is already so drunk that you know there's going to be a massive hangover the next morning. I mean, it's just going to be a disaster. And you're already at the point where you should call an Uber, go home and go to bed and accept the horrible hangover. But you know that, you know, at midnight, you know, somebody's going to be bringing more booze. And at two o'clock, somebody's going to be bringing in, we'll just call them entertainers. And at four o'clock, somebody's going to be bringing in illegal drugs. And the party is just going to get wilder and more out of control and more ridiculous. And here's what we don't know, Michael. We don't know when the police are going to show up and shut down the party. And the police in this case are the bond vigilantes. Are they going to do it at midnight, you know, when everybody's just drunk? Are they going to do it at two o'clock when the entertainers arrive? I'm using that word kind of tongue in cheek. Are they going to do it at four o'clock when the illegal drugs are? I don't know. At some point, the police or the bond vigilantes are going to come and they're going to shut down the party. But it's midnight right now. Are they going to shut it down now? Two o'clock, 4 a.m.? I don't know. But it's time for people to go home, take an Uber home and sleep off the hangover, if that analogy helps explain where we are. The party might go around for another for another lap of fun, but in the end, it's going to end the same way. I just don't know when. So I feel like that's a good transition to talk about Bitcoin for a minute, because that's, you know, a, a lot of things that you've said are, I think, and which I don't disagree with at all, are, you know, kind of core to sort of the belief that that's why Bitcoin is sort of inevitable for from a monetary system reset. I, I, want, I want you to talk through to the audience, your thesis on Bitcoin, how do you think about sizing it? How do you think about it from a trading investment perspective, just any kind of context there would be great. Yeah, that's a great question. We are big fans of Bitcoin. First of all, and this is going to sound crazy, but from a moral point of view, fiat currency is not, it's not moral. The idea that the government can, what, what a lot of people don't realize is the government prints another trillion dollars and they send out checks and you think, okay, great. Hey, I got my check. I've got money. Terrific. Well, guess what? You're going to pay for that check. You think it's free. It's not. You're going to pay for it indirectly in a higher cost of goods and services. And, you know, I, I laugh every time I see the new CPI report that shows food costs up 10%, right? I, I, everybody who's listening to this, if, if, tell me, have your food costs gone up only 10%? I'm, I suspect that the only people who think food costs are only up 10% haven't been in a supermarket in the last two years. So... The government uses fiat currency as a means of theft. And the only moral currency is a hard one. And the US dollar used to be backed by gold. The British pound used to be backed by gold, right? The ancient Roman currency backed by gold. So what you really need is a hard currency where the government can't just create more of it and dilute people's value to base the currency. Bitcoin is a great answer to that. And I know a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, why not just own gold? And the answer is you can, but gold becomes very difficult to transact with. It becomes difficult to transport. And if you're ever in a situation where you need to leave one country for another, traveling with gold is very difficult and they can stop you at national borders. Bitcoin can be sent 
instantly. And so we are big believers in Bitcoin as a possible solution to that. Regarding sizing the position, here's what I tell people who are skeptical or who don't get it or who are nervous. And, and I understand that this is something that is new. And Bitcoin itself is sort of sitting in this pool with a whole bunch of other cryptocurrencies. You know, the term for the other ones, I, I don't know if I can say it online, but it begins with an S coins. And so all of these other crappy assets, and I understand people, they don't understand it. They're nervous. Even I had a conversation with my dad before I went to the Bitcoin 2022 conference. I called him. I was on the phone with him. I said, yeah, dad, I'm leaving tomorrow. So where are you going? I said, Miami for the Bitcoin conference. And he said to me, oh, you know, I know someone who got involved in some Bitcoin investment. He said he got scammed out of his money. And from my dad's point of view, it was proof that Bitcoin was a scam. And my response was, and my dad's a smart guy. And he understands finance. I said, Dad, you realize people have been scammed out of dollars. They've been scammed out of pounds, out of yen, out of galleons, pieces of eight. Like fraud has existed since the beginning of time. There's nothing remarkable about this. And so what I advise these people to do is take 50 or 100 basis points and buy Bitcoin. And if it works it will go up a multiple of that and you're going to do well in it. And if it doesn't, then you'll have lost 50 or 100 basis points. But one of the things that I tell people who are very skeptical about Bitcoin or ask them rather is I ask them, why are you comfortable owning 100% of your assets denominated in fiat currency? Because throughout time, 100% of fiat currencies have gone to zero. There was a study done and we cited it. I actually wrote a white paper responding to Nassim Taleb, who was saying Bitcoin is worth a zero and uh, is worth zero. I respect Taleb a lot. I think he's an intellectual giant. I love his books. I love his reasoning. I don't agree with him on this point. We wrote a white paper arguing that his reasoning didn't hold up. And as part of that, I read there was somebody did a paper. There's something like 775 fiat currencies in history. They've all gone to zero. And if you take a look, the oldest currencies in existence right now, the British pound, approximately 350 years, it's lost 99.5% of its value. Again, what point can we call it a failure? Michael, if, if you loan me a million dollars and I give you $5,000 back and I say, okay, loans repaid, are you going to call that a win? Yeah, no, look, and, and, I, and I get the point on that. And I think people mistakenly think that I'm anti-Bitcoin, I'm anti-narratives, right? I, and I, yeah. I, think the idea, I think the idea of the technology and the idea that it could replace, I would view it not as a zero probability, but a low probability, but you want to have exposure to as many different lottery tickets in a portfolio. And argue, I'd argue that's, that's sort of along those, those lines. I, I am curious, Gary, and this is why I think it's going to be interesting if we look back a few years on 2022, if what's happened to the crypto industry at large, we look back and actually say that was the moment where everything did change for Bitcoin. You know, you often hear that line, right? There's crypto and there's Bitcoin. That there's yeah, I agree with that. Between the two, right? So could it very well be that this this horrendous collapse in the cryptocurrency industry ends up only strengthening the, the case for Bitcoin as the standalone? I completely agree with that. And and let's talk about that for a second. But But let me go back for one second. And you're right when you're talking about, hey, wait a minute, you're anti-narrative, you know, let's buy 
lottery tickets on things that could work. I completely agree with you. And the thing that strengthens that point is that there's no question that all fiat goes to zero. And so people who are saying, I'm worried about holding Bitcoin because I'm worried I'll lose money. My response is, hey, you're, but you own dollars. And the dollar has depreciated, I think, 96% since 1800. This year, the official number will be down 7 or 8%. But in reality, it's more like 15, 16% for the year. The CPI is in, intentionally understated. And so it's not just how does Bitcoin do, good or bad. It's if your alternative is owning fiat, you own something that 100% of the time goes to zero. And to me, that adds urgency to doing something here. Regarding your other question, I completely agree. The Sorry for the language, the shit coins, all of these other crypto coins, there are massive differences here. They never had a use case. A lot of them had unlimited issuance. They had centralized control and there was no proof of work. And the idea with Bitcoin is that it takes a lot of work to mine a Bitcoin. It is some it is actually insurance against fraud, against mining a counterfeit coin. Just like you can't mine fake gold, right? At some point, everything has to add up. And because there's decentralized control, you need a lot of people in a lot of places to agree, yes, this has been done right. And the fact that there's a hard cap at 21 million coins, and by the way, I think at this point millions of those coins have been irretrievably lost, means that Bitcoin is deflationary. So I agree with you. The sooner all of the nonsense is cleaned up and the speculative excesses and the leveraged plays on non-assets, the sooner all that's cleaned up, I think the more air there is in the room for something that's high quality and different like Bitcoin. I, I think the way you described it is exactly right. Yeah, I guess I guess the question is, you know, how regulation would fit into that, right? Because the, the the counter there is that all this provides ample ammunition for you know the government to come in and basically do what they do and probably ruin a good thing, although you can argue maybe they can't really ruin it. But I wonder how the the regulatory response, which presumably is still coming, might factor into any kind of longer term thesis around Bitcoin. Yeah. And not only is that an interesting question, a month ago I was speaking at an S&P Global Conference on Bitcoin regulation, and they had, it was a great discussion, wide variety of views, and people were, like we were going at it intellectually, but very respectful of each other. It was the most heated, polite conversation I've ever been part of. And everyone else was talking about the right way to regulate Bitcoin, and I made the point that, hey, you guys have the whole fiat world to regulate. Why not, you know, just continue regulating fiat and leave crypto or Bitcoin alone as decentralized, not try to control it. And we'll see which ideas win. And that to me made a lot of sense. I also pointed out, now this was not individual investors. These were institutions in the room. And I pointed out to them that, and I did it politely, but they were sitting there waiting for the government to give them regulations for what to do for their customers. And I said to them, there's nothing to stop you from taking those actions right now. If you think your customers aren't being properly protected, you guys can put measures in place. You don't need to wait for the SEC or the Treasury Department or the CFTC to make a decision. 
you can examine it, figure out what your customers need and implement it. Like take the lead, but you don't have to wait for the government to make a decision. In the end, the government can't ruin it and they can't regulate it. Michael, the only thing the US government can regulate is the behavior of US-based institutions. So they could go to Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs and say, if you're going to put clients in Bitcoin or custody Bitcoin, here's how you have to account for it, here's how you have to report it, here's how you, you know, deal with gains and losses. They can do that, but they can't affect the Bitcoin network, right? They, so they can't regulate crypto, they can't regulate Bitcoin, they can't regulate the blockchain. They can simply put in regulations that make it easy or hard for U.S. institutions to transact. And you know what you see is a situation where China, for a long time, was the leader in mining Bitcoin. The Chinese government said, nope, you can't do this anymore. And the hash rate, the number of calculations that were happening in a second or a minute on the network dropped. And then the Chinese shipped all of their mining rigs overseas and we plugged them in here and in other countries and everything just kept rolling, right? The, the old saying is, or not so old, the, the saying on it is you can't stop the Bitcoin network. You can just unplug yourself from it. So I'm hoping the US government takes a light touch, but if they don't, it doesn't really change anything. I think that's a good place to end this space. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow Gary Broad. I am sincere. He really does offer some phenomenal research and analysis. I myself have learned a lot looking at his content. I encourage each of you to do the same. Gary, always, uh, always a pleasure listening to you, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.